And it's Friday, and you know what that means. It's another round of the Dice Are Screaming podcast coming at you. Oh, wow. The Dice Are Screaming do have a reason to scream tonight, if you knew what this topic was about. Oh, man. (laughs) Beware the Squamous Bulk of gaming podcasts. Yes, we are the Squamous Bulk. And with that, we have a little public service announcement for all you listeners out there. If you've got some spare cash, um, CampCon, a con run by um, DM Selfie, which is just a basic uh, big camp that is a bunch of gaming held at a campground. Various uh, ways for a weekend to be spent gaming and getting it out in the wild for a little bit. Uh, They're having a fundraiser on GoFundMe. Go look them up. uh, CampCon, just like it sounds. Um, it's kind of in its halfway and uh, needs a little help. So if you've got any spare cash to give to him, uh, please do so. These guys are uh, doing it for vets and other people. So, you know, it all goes to a good cause for gamers to get together and have a little fun out in the woods. So as I understand, it's on his property, but it's rather expansive and needs some help. So DM Salty uh, is a man to contact on Twitter. Yeah, the guy's not looking for much. He's not asking for much, just enough to make it... Uh completely viable to to get this thing to happen. So, you know, go ahead, give it a look. Uh, Help a lot of nice folks have a terrific time. Yeah, and what better way to start a podcast with a little bit of celebration for gaming. So, yeah, if you read the intro, you know what's coming. (laughs) So uh, we're going to leave you in a little bit of suspense here, but uh, we want to get right into a little bit of this. Uh, we didn't have any call-ins this week, which is just fine. We know you guys are probably busy. It's coming up on Memorial Day, so everybody's getting ready. Oh. Uh, next week, you know. Well, that totally explains the neighbor already prepping the barbecue. Oh, yeah, and fireworks. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, time for the, the sweet, sweet uh, explosions that rock the neighborhood uh, until our little hometown sounds like downtown Fallujah. Yeah. So, um, with that, we want to thank all our listeners. Uh, We've been getting some good feedback, so uh, our Satanic Panic uh, did have some people uh, uh, directed to me some ideas about what we didn't cover, and yeah, we were a little rushed. Uh, It's hard to fit in everything that happened. We wanted to go with more of the feelings. Um, Yeah, putting Anton LaVey in there was, of course, uh, the fact that the guy kind of put it out in the public consciousness that there was an organized church and of course the imagination ran wild maybe we didn't cover that heavily enough but that was the inclusion of anton levay not we were not praising him more no no the the point was that uh, just less than a decade before the explosion of the full-blown satanic panic a guy came forward you know purporting himself to be the head of a vast church uh, and was happy to inflame passions and like influence perceptions uh, for his own benefit, uh, thereby helping the wheels spin off a decade later where the easily panic-stricken and extremely gullible uh, fell for a lot of stuff that they probably should not have. Yeah, and... So he didn't help. He didn't certainly help, but um, that deserves a little bit of mention as an afterthought, I think, to our podcast. But I was pretty happy with it, and... uh, yeah, again, just keep the comments coming. You had anything you would like to add to that, uh, keep them coming in. We'll uh, cover them as they uh, happen. So, 
All right, uh, on to our topic. Well, yes, we are going to talk about Call of Cthulhu tonight. Oh, boy. Covering it. Well, you know what to do. I Burn do. All, all the, the books. books. That's right. In the spirit of our satanic panic, this one, we really mean it. Yeah, this this is the game that, well, the game to at least guaranteed end that game. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, I don't think I've had that many characters ever make it out of Call of Cthulhu. Like no. One or two made it through a session. Right, and we'll cover more of that after the break. We're going to take a quick one right here to give a pause for our advertisers, which is Anchor Podcast, anchor.fm. Get it and use it if you need to get your podcast started and off the ground. So we'll let them take it away, and we'll be right back. All right, and we're back. So thanks again for tuning in. And, of course, uh, we're bringing you some topic of Call of Cthulhu. And also, we're going to be doing a little bit of uh, introspective on H.P. Lovecraft. So that's where we're going to get started, but uh, gaming material will be covered in this. So just starting it out, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, hate him, like him. I mean, you have to acknowledge the man was definitely out there at the time. He was not acknowledged during his lifetime. Actually, it would be during the 50s that he would start to reach more acclaim. But um, he uh, did uh, pass away uh, by suicide, and uh, some people feel that uh, because of his racist views that he should not be covered. And we're just going to say this. Yes, we do have some white privilege that we can ignore that. But in the context of when he lived... Oh, no, honestly, you know what? I'm going to say we don't ignore it. We uh, don't. We acknowledge it, rather. Right. Uh, it is a thing. It, it happened. That was a thing. Uh, but there's a risk that comes with everything in history. Uh, no matter what era you turn to, if it was sufficiently far back, almost every single human being had some view which we now find objectionable. And I don't actually think that the things that we find objectionable you know, are an indication that we're wrong versus history. I, I think there's been a, a continual process of improvement and refinement and growing understanding, and it's part of the process. However, if we close the door on all of history because something in there is objectionable, we learn nothing from our own past as human beings. We don't, we don't absorb the good lessons and learn to recognize the terrible mistakes. Uh, so I, I don't think ignorance, you know, intentional ignorance, is a way in which to achieve uh, a better world. Uh, you know, erasing stuff does not make it go away. Uh, Lovecraft unquestionably held a lot of offensive views, uh, not not merely racial, uh, but he it, was also he, heavily involved in classes. Uh, oh, elitist. extremely classist. This is a guy who was upper crust, wealthy, and well, near to do well. Yeah, yeah. you know, but uh, <laughs> had a rather high-handed opinion of you know the little people. Uh, now, but we're not ignoring it. We're just saying that, you know, that's not what we're here to cover. And, no, no. And but, we're here to cover uh, his literary career and the impact he had. Now, uh, fair enough. Uh, and his literary career is nothing to scoff at. The guy did have one thing going for him. Amazing gift for language. I mean, one of the most thorough knowledges of the English language 
amongst authors of that time. Just a stunning vocabulary that made reading Lovecraft, well, a, a unique experience. You better grab your thesaurus. You're going to need it. Uh. <laughs> right, and one of the things about uh, Howard Phillips Lovecraft was that he had kind of reached that barrier where language could cover what he was trying to express. It wasn't that he struggled with articulation, because he was articulate. Oh, sure. But he had, there were a few words that could really convey what he was trying to get across. And I think it shows a little bit in his work from his love of Poe, as also the Odyssey and Homer, that he had a deep understanding of how language works. Now, maybe he wasn't as articulate as others would be with it. Um, there were other people who took it, but let's discuss a little bit right now about the Cthulhu mythos. I, I'm going to mention as a preface, uh, with regard to the Cthulhu mythos, at the time that he began writing this material, uh, the age of archaeology had really begun to explode. Uh, there were a wildly abundant series of uh, fanciful notions regarding right. the origins of humanity. Uh, fanciful is a good word. Yeah, I, it, it was, you know, there were these flights of fancy that people just got the notion that, like, hey, there's a lost continent beneath Antarctica or things of that ilk. Uh, an inner earth and a lost Atlantis. You know, all of those notions came out of that time period when our incredibly linear, uh, very simplistic view of the entirety of human history was being shattered. And right. something had to fill in to take its place. And at that exact moment, here comes this guy with his own little notion about how large the universe really is, which that was another thing that was being well discovered in, in astronomy uh, and in physics and... Uh, science. Yes, Einstein had just published his theory of relativity. Yeah. World, the end of World War I had unleashed massive horrors of industrial age warfare. Oh, yeah. The capacity Com to harm ourselves and one another had been proven to be beyond anything we had ever imagined in the past. Now, he grew up in that time, but I think he was at the event horizon where he was too close to really articulate how he felt about it. I mean, he was obviously horrified. But yeah, how could you make relevance of that scale of horror and death and suffering? Men maimed beyond all recognition, yet modern science allowed them to live. Yeah, likewise. I mean, that, that was another thing, is that the consequences of our actions uh, became more permeable because they couldn't just be shoved in a hole in the ground and forgotten. Uh, the abominable things that humanity has done to one another... Uh, also in an age of mass print and like travel of just barely sufficient speed to link nations meant that the world started to experience things collectively. You know, mm -hmm. the, the dawn of the age of radio was, you know... Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and that's a very prominent point. Um, but I would like to posit that he had a viewpoint that fit in with the theory of relativity and almost gave it a theology. And uh, I'll discuss that in a minute, but he also had, as Mike said, the archaeological background. He himself was a bit of a scientist as a chemist, and he was starting to understand the fundaments of the breakdown of what it is to be human, that 
we were not uh, perfect creations by divine source, but we were kind of an organic being that survived through multiple failures, and only the fit survived. And while that might lead you to gen eugenics, he was not that principal character. He did not buy into eugenics per se. He bought into the idea that uh, certain people had certain advantages over others and were more successful because of those. Yeah, and that's the, a bunch the, of pish posh if you really break it down, because each person can uh, exceed their boundaries and environments. Makes yeah, that uh, the, the eugenic crap uh, also flooded the marketplace of ideas at that time, too, uh, leading to a lot of particularly horrific things. Uh, there's a, there's a mm -hmm. chunk of human uh, ingenuity that really belongs in the, uh, at the bottom of the kitty litter, yeah, yeah, and you know, <laughs> to his credit, little, he did he did brush, brush it aside over that. He did brush it aside as he thought all humanity was inherently flawed in a deep and disturbing manner. Yeah, that's actually a, a one extra point worth mentioning. There, very good, is that uh, yeah, his his opinion of humanity was remarkably low. Um, <laughs> that. Uh, the the likelihood of of any of us being particularly high on the universal totem pole was pretty much nil. So, <laughs> so in his writings, we're going to cover just three, and then we're going to get into the game a little bit. But I think it bears to mention also his shared world concept. So we'll want to come back to that in a minute as well. So getting back to what we talked about, his uh, story writing, three particular stories stick out uh, for his Cthulhu Mythos, and the Cthulhu Mythos uh, was a shared world. Yeah, each well worth reading for their impact on Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game. The reading of these books, if you have not read them, uh, will better prepare you to run an RPG based on Call of Cthulhu right. in any edition. Yeah, yeah you, you do need to read at least a couple of them, but he shared his creation and his vision with other writers, corresponding by mail. Including Robert E. Howard, author of Conan. Robert Bloke and August Derrilla being also among those few. But um, in the mythos, uh, we'll cover the first one, which is the Mountains of Madness, where these elder things are discovered by these uh, Antarctic explorers who run afoul of an amorphous, hateful beast called the Shogoth. And uh, they just keep saying the same thing over and over again. They don't understand it until they finally come to the stone and... They see a monolith, and they all go gibbering mad. Now, for most people at the time, that was like, what the heck? You know, these guys go to the Antarctic and are almost eaten by an amorphous blob of thesaurian uh, horror. And then, what? They go mad? Yeah. Uh, when they discover that what it's been saying has been on this block and of stone standing out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, they understood that these uh, that humanity could in perhaps been an experiment that was abandoned by these unknown elder things that they only got glimpses of in the pictographs. <laughs> and this thing called the Shugoth was running amok, and it was just immense bulk of just squalmous, amorphous horror. Just hate and just destructive of, of a destructive bent that the was hideous, inimical. The, the hideous organism, the organism that ate Sheboygan. Uh, yep, the precursor to it. And uh, I think it's his second cousin, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that kind of rocked the world. and People were, like, scratching their heads, like, what is this guy on? Yeah, it, what is he doing? It, what is he saying? It didn't hit instant popularity in his lifetime. Okay, these things were not... Uh, obviously, he popped up in the horror pulp novels, mm -hmm. pulp yeah. magazines, uh, things like that. 
but there was a lot of head scratching. But it had an influence. There were people who read it and went, whoa. Wait, uh, and then... Scientific you know. endeavors met with strange antediluvian culture that isn't even remotely in any way, shape, or form human. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And then uh, he did another one, which was a kind of a little bit of a wink and a nod to Bram Stoker, which was Call of Cthulhu, where uh, the original Dracula, when Bram Stoker wrote it, was done as kind of an episodic of papers, diaries, and journals, all pieced together until it came to the uh, the moment of where you were narrating it in real time. Yes, you get the background of the story, and then that leads you into the final conflict, which, you know, the final conflict being the part that is in real time. And again, in Call of Cthulhu, uh, these strange events, dreamers are having uh, vision-sensitive psychics are experiencing these horrific nightmares that seem to be recurring themes of non-Euclidean architecture, something deep beneath the sea, um, murders and cults and all sorts of weirdnesses happening, and they all piece it together that they narrowly averted a worldwide catastrophe as this ancient city came up from the sea by these uh, uh, merchants, Norwegian merchants, and he never wrote of it again. He wrote it down in his journal in English because his wife didn't <laughs> uh, read English, and uh, the in intrepid investigator who's piecing all this together from his uncle's rambling, who went mad in an insane asylum, a recurring theme, and uh, he puts it together that uh, this Norwegian captain saved humanity by running Cthulhu over the ship. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just went completely stark raving mad afterwards, just, and later committed suicide. Terrible. Yeah, the, the gist of it repeatedly is, you know, that the human brain is not intended to understand these things. That there, there's, it's more than we can take. We're not actually constitutionally right. capable of accepting this overload of information. And that there was a worldwide network of these cults and things, you know, that we didn't kill them. They came for them. They did the work. We just appeased them, you know. And so it's a really great book. I, I recommend Call of Cthulhu is probably one of the better uh, works to come out of it. And then the last one we want to cover here, and we're just trying to hurry it up, is... Uh, Shadows over Insmith. Now, oh, again, good. I'm so glad that was the one you were. Going yeah, about. and you ah. know this cult of deep ones. You know, people had been interbreeding with these creatures from the sea. Now, these are more or less amphibian and somewhat uh, understandable because they kind of had a relationship with people on the uh, land. And uh, but there was the Insmith taint, as it was called. And people, uh, <laughs> a lot of webbed feet there yeah. in Insmith. <laughs> and. Uh, the source of horror is, of course, the uh, guy who's there for looking at architecture starts to find that these just aren't misshapen humans. They're not even human anymore. And he's next. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, <laughs> You're not leaving here. <laughs> so, you know, and it ends with the government uh, cleansing the town with fire. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a submarine attacking a reef. But, uh, you know, it does no good. Because, you know, and he learns a lot about their uh, philosophies and ideals. Mother, uh, Father Dagon and uh, Mother Hydra, the two uh, most infamous long-lived deep ones that dwelt deep, deep in the Marianas. Anyway, so those three make the, uh, the start of Call of the Cthulhu Mythos. And other writers like uh, Robert Bloke, uh, the Shadow, or the 
Color from Outer Space. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, Robert E. Howard uh, did a couple uh, Cthulhu tales as well. And that's the one thing we want to praise here is that, you know, here was uh, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, and he just basically said, hey, if you want to write about this, this is there's no rules. Just add your own twist to it. August Durlis made it more like a Christian, like there's a good side and a bad side. And that's fine, too. I mean, that was the whole point, is that you could do with it what you wanted. And it was a shared world concept. Now, that was not a common thing, you know, in, in that era. I mean, it, it's one of really the first uh, 20th century uh, examples of an author opening the door for everyone else to write in the, you know, verse, in the, in the concept place that he had set a story in. Or she, you know, nobody did that kind of thing then. So it's a momentous occasion, and as those of us who enjoy fantasy and science fiction are familiar with so many uh, shared worlds that uh, authors present now or in the recent past, it, you know, it's a momentous thing to mention that. Wow, you know, this this was one of those very first ever yeah. examples of, hey, go ahead, you know, here's the playground, guys, go for it. Yeah, and, you know, uh, H.P. Lovecraft, as we're just going to end this about him, was sometimes he railed against other authors. He'd write the notes like, oh, you're doing it wrong, or this, that, the other thing. But other authors afterwards, including Stephen King, uh, Ramsey Campbell, and many other writers that I can't recall. I think Gene Wolfe, too, actually penned a few. But uh, they all, everybody kind of plays a little bit in the Cthulhu uh, bathtub, you know, they jump in the pool and, you know, there's Mighty Cthulhu and he waves hi to you with his big webbed hand. <laughs> and so, what a strange place to make a game. Okay, let's let's roll it into the game side now. Yeah, it's time to bring out the, you know, the actual game itself uh, and examine, you know, our first encounters with Call of Cthulhu, uh, we were just, what, uh, Late teens at most. I think we were about 15, 16. It, we, were, we were that mature age where we could understand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'd only been gaming yeah. a couple of years at the point. Uh, but uh, in 82, Chaosium would produce their masterwork. I mean, uh, they did RuneQuest and Pendragon, but we're here to discuss Call of Cthulhu. But Chaosium, man, we don't give enough praise. and Perhaps we will give them their due sometime, but... What a crazy game to come out with. I mean, a, a game of cosmic pointlessness. I mean, it was literally nihilism in uh, game form. And look, struggle though you might, uh, the opposition that you face in Call of Cthulhu is otherworldly, uh, indifferent, amoral, and possessed of its own purposes, that you have no real ability to influence in any way. At best, uh, in, in the most fortunate of circumstances, you, you twig to what's going on. You figure out that there is a threat that is about to be unleashed, and you stop it from being unleashed, defeating the minions. However, should you fail, uh, should those great evils be unleashed, it's over. Yeah. So, there's a lot of uh, monsters and but in the Cthulhu mythos, but they're not monsters like you would face in D and D or uh, Pathfinder, or most other role playing games. You don't want anything to do with these things. As a matter of fact, just the acknowledgement they exist saps your sanity because you're playing people 
who are way in over their heads. I don't care where you start your characters out. If you want to be SEAL Team 6 and uh, Delta Force in Vietnam fighting uh, Cthulhu Horrors in the uh, Southeast Asian uh, Theater War, go for it. You're still in over your heads because you're not going to face down Nyarlathotep with yeah. gunfire. Going back to a core concept mentioned during the literature phase, uh, it's a reiteration of the notion that man is not meant to understand these things that you know we're we're wired a certain way as human beings uh to kind of place ourselves at the top of the heap and it is a mind and spirit shattering realization uh, to encounter something that upends your entire view of the universe and your place in it so what do you game, mean it's on fire and it still keeps coming at you <laughs> it's i just pumped like a hundred rounds out of this machine gun into it, and it's it still just coming. Keeps coming. Uh, uh, what do you mean it doesn't stop? It but just won't die. It just won't die. That brings us to the sanity points, which yeah, everybody has sanity points, uh, and generally a lot of them. I mean, you know, what was it like? Uh, the 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 starting baseline was based on your. Your, uh, your power scores. Yeah, you had Chaosium um, had power instead of wisdom, so it's kind of like a wisdom stat. But it was the essence of what your real center was. Yeah, and your your degree of intense focus and ability to exhibit self control and self awareness. So it was times five. So like if you had a fifteen, you know, fifteen times five. Help me, I'm a. You're coming out of the gate with seventy five. Thank you. Yeah. You're ready to roll. I'm a dirt. Uh, so now. It's a good thing you have so many sanity points because you will be kissing them goodbye. Do not, do not expect to cling to them and be like these. Oh no, these these beautiful virginal sanity points will go untouched during this entire. No, no, get over it right now. <laughs> yeah, but things like fire vampires, Chthonians, and the aforementioned Shoggoth, elder things, the fungi from Migo, you're going to go mad. And yeah, you do not face. Uh, Nyarlathotep himself, uh, I mentioned in a previous one about the mass Nyarlathotep. Yeah, he kind of makes a couple of appearances, but kind of like uh, Arthas in Wrath of the Lich King from World of Warcraft. He just kind of shows up, says a few words, and leaves. You know, he basically, he doesn't, he doesn't even care because that's how much you matter to him. He yeah. does not care. Your greatest protection in the realm of Cthulhu mythos is your irrelevance. Uh, the fact that you are beneath notice and cannot actually do any significant harm of any kind to the greater beings, that's actually your protection. So it, it, You just don't matter that much. Right, and so you create characters that are professors, literate people who catch on to these things, and maybe you've got, you know, your rugged, private detective, kind of Mickey Spillane, cast-type character. Two-fisted with a, you know, 48... Oh, well, you know, all right, the classic 45, but, uh, you know, like a 38 special. Yeah. Just waiting to go. Maybe you got one or two of those. But you know what? Most of your characters are not made for combat. And, you know, a good Call of Cthulhu campaign captures the three primal essences of the Cthulhu mythos. That, one, mankind is irrelevant in the scheme of things. We're here for a small period of time where these beings are... Immaterial time is nothing to them. They last. They're outside of the boundaries of our yeah. normal mortality. It's okay. They can wait. <laughs> and the best you can hope is just to be ignored by them. The second premise is that science will unearth 
some cosmic horror and dread that will send us screaming back to a, the bliss of a dark age. And that's another thing that you could best hope for, is that if you use the magic items and the books from these Elder Ages, they drain your sanity. They hurt you. Like the spell, the dread sign of Shudmel that you're investigator. Oh, uh, was that the one that uh, Simon Mindbridge had? Yes, Simon Mindbridge, yes. Yeah. So you cast that, and you actually went insane from the casting of the spell. <laughs> of course, it melts your enemies, but, yeah, you know. I, I lost sanity points, but, I mean, in, that was a later game. After I had really gotten the hang of, like, oh, wow, okay, so. Uh, this is what it's this, like. This is, this is not a game to be lightly trifled with. Uh, I, I think it was my second outing. Uh, I played a professor named Simon Mindbridge. Who uh, was basically hobo with a shotgun and a handful of magic spells? But he, he started was a, as a—he was a, a paranoid alcoholic. He started uh, as a occult a investigator. He was just like, curious about occult things and kind of had this weird philosophy. And, and then he found the truth, and boy, did everything change then. <laughs> the truth will not set you free. The things that he saw. <laughs> but learning one of the spells there was so sinister, what it did to other people. It was very effective in combat, but the toll it took on your sanity. One die, 20 sanity every time you cast it. Yeah. That, it was horrifying. Uh, absolutely, you know, a, a end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, turn your head and don't stare at what happens next. Don't look uh, at it. You know, that ethos... Uh, is completely alive in Call of Cthulhu. And it's meant, even the things that you think are helping you may not entirely be harmless, even for you. They, they can harm your enemies, but they will, like a two-edged sword, they cut both ways. You are injured even in the process of uh, defending yourself. Danger abounds. And that is the key of the third part, is which is the... Psyche of the human mind, all our pride, all our achievements is nothing to these things. And they look at us as they would ants. Yes, clever, perhaps maybe even inventive or somewhat curious to watch. But they mean us no good will. They have none. Oh, yeah, they're incapable of it. Oh, you know, the cultists are actually just deluded people who, by virtue of being what might be considered useful in some sense, uh, are kidding themselves. That they'll they curry have, favor yeah. or be able to buy us some time uh, for themselves. I'll and, be the new ruler when Cthulhu comes Exactly. To and it, it's an intentional mockery of the human habit of assessing our self-worth as far greater than the universe would actually place it. Right. And just, wow, there must be a way for me to gain advantage through this vast power I have discovered. It doesn't care about you, and it never will. <laughs> yeah, and so those sublime things are at the central focus, for at least me and perhaps Mike, of playing Call of Cthulhu. It is hard mode. You don't have many hit points. Your sanity is relative to the moment. Using the spells and magic items is damaging to your own health and sanity. And half the time, having to uncover the ways to use these things or find out clues how to confront these creatures drives you insane because it uncovers more horror. Yeah, and like I said, in the, the best of all scenarios is to really be, you know, crack on with uh, figuring out who's behind what, where is the cult located, what are they trying to accomplish, uh, and then destroy them before. You know, it, it, it's the, the kind of 
a dark story that ends with like an entire houseful of cultists being burned alive because it was the only way to preventing on the happy ending. That's the best ending. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you're talking the happy ending. We're talking ninth gate territory here. And so, why do people love this game? And I'll tell you why. Because it is an experience like no other. It is literary. And, you know, we already had the conversation about H.P. Lovecraft, but there are other authors, and the way that the game has been set up has taken a life of its own where people have been able to explore horror constructively. I mean, this literally is a no-win situation, so why you subject yourself to it? And some people don't, but many do, and the reason why is because it's a great thrill ride, it's cerebral, to a certain extent. Of course, you know, it was a game with weapon stats, you know, I can it can bleed, it can die. Well, okay, Batman, you, know, you go after that. How many horror movies have you seen where, uh, well, like a perfect example, uh, you take your Resident Evil movie uh, and a bunch of people go in and, like, you know, two make it back out and one of them is not in great shape. <laughs> you know, it's headed for a, a bad ending. That's the kind of thing we're talking about, is that it's, it's a very much the horror experience in game form, with a group of people delving into something that is way over their heads, high casualty likelihoods, uh, probably, if you're very fortunate, perhaps a survivor or two. And that's the challenge, is you're like, are you going to navigate your way out of this, even while others are falling left and right? No, I did mention earlier about the Delta Green supplement, which was uh, where basically your covert military operation is sent into uh, Cthuloid areas with the government's tacit approval. Welcome to Predator. And that still doesn't end well. Even if you're kitted out with the modern one, I think just came out a while ago, and boy, it doesn't matter. A fire vampire is still going to decimate you. Oh, yeah, all those explosive weapons you threw at it? Just incinerates before it even hits them. Your bullets melt before it even touches it. So how are you going to fight it? Well, we'll get some, uh, you know, uh, nitrous oxide, you know, just liquid nitrogen, I mean, and just, you know, freeze it. Okay, well, where are you going to get that? Uh, yeah, that might be a bit of a problem. Put it in the refrigerator. We'll turn the air conditioning up really low. You know, turn it down really low, like 49 degrees, then he'll leave. All right. <laughs> we lure him back to town. <laughs> then... We got a guy waiting with a wrecking ball right next to a pool. <laughs> Pow! Slash. And, yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, not only the game takes place during the 20s, but uh, they've moved it out to the 60s and into the 80s and, of course, modern times. Uh, there's another one where it's Pulp Cthulhu, which is more like uh, you kind of have a chance, but let's be real here. You're probably going to die. Yeah, all right. They only marginally lowered the threshold. That you're actually seasoned uh, hunters of cults and phenomena like this, and so Pulp Cthulhu gives you kind of a two-fisted kind of action-oriented thing, but, you know, they also, they don't get around like, you know, just when the players think that they're winning, just, you know, let one of the creatures of in the back of the book, just that you know, oh, it's a Beinecke. What's that do? It drives you insane. Yeah. It haunts your nightmares that. after it look, you look at it once, it's forever following you. Or a hound to Dallas. Or, oh, a color from outer space. How do you fight color? <laughs> it's the weird shade of the color purple, and it's angry. 
don't understand what this is about. <laughs> I'm blue, double D, double do. Yeah. Uh, it just, there are no easy happy endings. At best, uh, a little armistice where, like, we've managed to forestall doom for just a little longer. And most of the time you do fight cults, but sometimes you're against the creature. Sometimes you're trying to find out a clue to stop it. Sometimes the Elder Sign is kind of a way to hedge on them, and some uh, Call of Cthulhu keepers, as they're called, if you uh, run a uh, session of Call of Cthulhu, you take the mantle of the Keeper. Mm. The Crypt Keeper. Oh, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. <laughs> well, I don't know about that guy, but I just say the cult Keeper of Arcane Knowledge. But... You can say Crypt Keeper, too. I would go with the idea that constructing a Call of Cthulhu adventure involves mostly investigation and hints of horror before the actual showdown happens. And most of the time, with its cult, they may summon something, or they may have something in their thrall, or at their uh, binding or behest, but... Yeah, comparatively minor creature, because only the least significant of creatures can be controlled uh, by spell. Uh, the more moderate ones, you know, are there on their master's bidding. Congratulations! Which... You've learned the spell Bind Elder Star Spawn. Now, you have to look at one. Yeah. <laughs> <No>! <laughs> when you consider that this translated material was originally meant to be executed by beings like unto themselves, yep. uh, rather than by you. Uh, that you are woefully unprepared for this task. <laughs> From this ancient stone tablet, all these people are killing them, killing each other over. You manage to decipher what it means. It's some type of binding. An ancient Sumerian. Or a thing from beyond the stars. And it shows up. <laughs> oh, no. Whoops. <laughs> so... Uh, I think we've covered pretty much everything. We did touch a little bit on uh, the theory of relativity, but I would also say that uh, one of the things that came out of it was a rather high-minded look at uh, the Cthulhu mythos, defining the theory of relativity of Einsteinian physics with the three elder gods. Azathoth, the blind idiot god of destruction, who is represented by the black holes. Shubnugurath, which is the inimical force of nature, primordial, and unfettered that just constantly spawns, devours, and competes against itself. The spawn of Shabdagarat. And Yogg-Sothoth, the being of time that is everywhere at once but nowhere at all, and yet appears with havoc and destruction. This pretty much sets up, uh, you know, the theory of relativity. You know, there was nothing, then there was something, and during that time there was something, time was created, these three uh, greater beings form the nucleus of the Cthulhu gods, and all the others are elder ones, great races that came up and evolved into these nasty creatures, or were just formed out of their own angry self-consciousness. Because Cthulhu is a pretty cranky bastard, even if he is an artist. <laughs> oh, oh, well, you know, artists are known to be moody to begin with. Yeah. But... He's that, a dreamer. That's the uh, the gist of the Cthulhu mythos. It's just an uncaring universe, infinitely larger uh, than humanity is capable of grasping, and discreetly full of things that we have not yet brushed up against, 
which are terrifying in their aspect because they remind us that we are not nearly as cool or as awesome as we think we are. Wow. Yeah, very... uh, that's that's Cthulhu mythos in a nutshell. Lovecraft exactly. uh, created this in an era where people were, as I'd said in the beginning, becoming aware that there was more to stuff than they had thought. And that kind of creates a little creeping anxiety, a little... little whisper of fear in the back of the mind that says, you know, what if we're really not as important as we think we are? Uh, what if this is a blip? What if this is an accident? What if there's no rhyme, no reason, no meaning at all? That's a terrifying thing to embrace. Uh, but we made a role-play game of it, so... Yeah, so, you know, I mean... Grab your friends and take die six insanity points, so... Uh, yeah, if you're going to take the Albert Camus uh, route on it, uh, well, it all means nothing anyway. Might as well have a good time. That's right. So, we'll wrap that up, and good job, everybody, for sticking with us if you made it through that entire episode of us rambling on like a pair of goons. But, we would also like to remind you that you can get a hold of us on Facebook, on the Dice or Screaming Facebook page, or get a hold of us at Twitter, me at Death and Gaming, and myself at Magi Box. All right, and uh, let us know what you think of this episode, or things you'd like us to talk about, or where you think we've got it right, or where we got it wrong. But... In that, we are going to bid you adieu, so... May, may the, the dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya! <laughs>